idea of what service is. It gives you a new idea of like sharing the gospel, how to build relationships really fast with a kid. And uh, that wasn't me. Uh, no, it's good, you know, it's fine. Um, so if even if it the camp isn't Cran Hill, I would encourage you guys all to spend one summer at a camp just because of the way that it will impact you and influence you going forward uh, and just change your perspective in general. But you are, I am also a little biased though, so why Cran Hill, right? Uh, I'm just excited about the mission of uh, Cran Hill. We're all about changing, transforming lives into the image of Christ. And we just have the opportunity to do that from a super young age of like six years old all the way up to our summer uh, camp of 17 is our oldest, and then we even have our family campground so that even families can come and hear uh, the gospel. We hold church services and things like that, too. So really, our scope is uh, pretty awesome. Um, but we ask uh, former staff um, who worked at camp before to talk about like why they think that Crane Hill was something that was impactful for them, and now Matt can play the video. Working at Cran Hill has had a huge impact on me. I learned a lot more about myself and gained so many amazing new friendships I never would have gotten if I hadn't worked at Cran Hill. Working at Cran Hill really strengthened my relationship with God and he was able to use me in so many different ways to help everyone else have such a strong relationship with him. Working at Grand Hill, my relationship with God has really grown a lot and I've become a lot more intentional in my faith. Working at Grand Hill has had a greater impact on me than I ever thought it could. It's helped me strengthen my joy and my passion for Jesus in the summer that I've worked there and as well as that has continued throughout the school year at college. Seeing campers on fire for Jesus and wanting to grow and learn about the gospel and witnessing chains being broken and fears being conquered has been absolutely life-changing. So also in that video you saw, which I didn't mention, that we also offer a few weeks of uh, a special needs camp, um, four weeks of special needs camp if you have any interest in that too. Um, it's an incredible program as well. Um, anyway, 
Uh, so honestly, I just wanted to say all of those uh, things and just ask you that if you have any interest whatsoever um, or any inkling of interest or even any inkling of inkling of interest, talk to me or Nate because it's an incredible opportunity. And honestly, we have positions anywhere from working with kids 24-7 or working with kids never because <laughs> of the scope of our ministry. We have uh, things with maintenance, kitchen, other things like that. Uh, we have, like I said, kitchen, guide cabin leaders, uh, uh, maintenance, guide cabin leaders, and uh, basically guide cabin leaders. So if you're a dude, also come work for me because we need you badly. Anyway, thank you. Thanks, Will. Uh, we, uh, oh, Stu, Stuco has an announcement. I didn't want to put him on the spot again. I'm a little nervous about that now. <laughs> All right, let's hear for Caleb. I think I'm a little more prepared this time, at least like a little bit. I know a little bit more what's going on. So Saturday night at 7.30, or did we say 8? 7.30, I believe. We're going to have, okay, Jacenia's mad. I think it's 8. I don't know. We'll, we'll announce this part later. I guess I'm not very prepared. But sometime Saturday night, we'll have, um, we're going to do a family feud game show night. And so make your own teams of around five people for that. And then we're also going to have wings. And we're going to announce the flavors later. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Uh Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then Ken's going to come up and uh, lead us in a song. And after that, we'll uh, give our attention to McBee. Father, thank you for uh, this opportunity to be here, gathered in your name. Bless us, I pray. Bless McBee as he brings a message from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
got to get good at it. I, uh, I think it's better than I wish we'd all been ready by Larry Norman. And I teach Revelation, so I should know. Uh, this is a little wobbly for my taste. But, oh. It may be perchance that my laptop falls on the ground during this. Okay. Welcome. Oh, round of applause, Wesley. Thank you, sir. So, I like to get right into it. Today I thought I'd do something a little artsy and a little Scottish. So, I, uh, I texted Ruben this morning to ask him if he would hazard a recitation of this poem by the great uh, Scottish poet Robert Burns. It is written in a thick Scottish dialect, but uh, my text never reached him, unfortunately. And so I'm going to read uh, the English translation beneath. It's called To a Mouse by Robert Burns. And Burns was actually plowing the fields and accidentally destroyed a mouse nest as he was plowing. And that mouse had needed the nest to survive the winter, and Burns' brother, who's out there plowing the field with him, claims that uh, Robert Burns composed this poem while still holding the plow. This is the second to last stanza. It goes, mouse, little mousy, you are not alone, improving foresight may be vain, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, and leave us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. Here are some things I think Robert Burns is saying to the mouse, the mousy, as they apparently said in uh, Scottish English back in the day. Plans are often necessary and good. In any case, that mouse would have needed and probably still needs a place to live during the winter. And so it was appropriate and good for the mouse to prepare a winter nest. This is a good instinct, a good impulse. But also, Burns notices that plans promise joy, or at least something desirable. Otherwise, why would you plan for it? For the mouse, the instinct to build that nest meant surviving the winter. It meant the possibility of abundant life in spring. But plans can't guarantee the future. And planning can't save us from disappointments in a fallen world where the best laid plans of mice and men do often go awry. We can't guarantee the future with our plans. And even Burns, who's sympathetic to the mousy, 
sometimes participates in plowing down the mousy's nest. Plans open us then to new sadness. It can be disastrous as it was for this little mousy, unfair, certainly, and heartbreaking when our plans do not work out. It's the same kind of sadness that we experience when we experience a broken promise. If plans promise, then failed plans are a kind of betrayal. Now you all can probably relate to Burns, and maybe some of you can relate to the mousy. It's wise to plan for the future, but, and uh, you know, committing to plans for the future is not something Gen Z is particularly good at. Committing to those plans opens you to new kinds of heartbreak. If you're invested in something, you can lose your investment. You can lose your mousy house. More than even the fair, or the, the fair, well-founded, I think, fear that your plans might not work out, the very process of making and formalizing plans can really cause some anxiety. Rather than bringing the kind of comfort and security you would hope for if you were a mousy snuggling into your housey for the winter. Unfortunately, Robert Burns is not in much of a position to offer you comfort. So we just read the second to last stanza. Here's the last one. Still, little mousy, you are blessed compared with me. The present, the situation that's all around you, only touches you. But oh. I backward cast my eye, I looked back on the past, on prospects dreary, and forward, although I can't see, I don't know what the future holds, someone could plow down my mousy housey, I guess, and I know I live in a world where the plows are at work, and I fear. Not particularly comforting testimony especially if you're thinking about what you're going to do after Rosedale and maybe whether you're going to stay. Now, Burns is a keen observer of nature, capital N. He's a romantic. He is attentive to the wisdom of the wild things. He's searching for the sublime. If a flower bed is pretty, the Grand Canyon is sublime. The Milky Way is sublime. You look at it and you're bowled over by it, just the grandeur, the majesty of the situation. And for the true romantic, for Burns, the grandeur of capital N nature is present even in a destroyed mousy housey. And so I would say, and maybe you would agree, that, that Burns, in his attentiveness to nature, has seen something that is true. 
at least so far as it goes. His attentiveness to nature has opened him to a profound insight about human affairs. The best laid plans of mice and men do often go awry. Thinking about the future is hard. Remembering the past is painful. It seems that there is not much natural, capital N, comfort to be found. Now, we only read two stanzas, but you might be interested to know that God is not explicitly present in this poem to a mouse. And like many romantics, Burns could be a bit critical of the Kirk, the established Scottish church, Christianity as commonly practiced. For most romantics, or at least many of them, direct engagement with the Christian faith that they inherited has been replaced with reflection upon the wisdom of the wild thing. And so we can learn valuable things about God by reflecting upon his works. We can learn true things about the natural world and our place in it by observing carefully. God is, after all, the creator of this world where we seem to play a distinctive role. God is sovereign over the heavens, the earth, and all that is in them. He is the highest authority because these things exist and continue to exist by his design. And although creation is fallen, disordered, not as it was in the beginning, God's wisdom and power are still woven throughout the natural small n world. But the good news is that God has given us more than just capital N nature. We can do more than look up at the night sky or look out at the Grand Canyon or look down at the mousy housey. And maybe we can find comfort there. God has given us special revelation. We serve a talkative God, a God who did not sever all communication with sinners, but has graciously bound himself to them in covenant faithfulness and love. God's special revelation is preserved and made public for his people in Scripture. And his spirit dwells in the church today. And above all, through the objective work of the spirit, inspiring the words of scripture, incarnating Jesus and the Virgin Mary, through the subjective internal work of the spirit, illuminating the testimony of scripture for us, we hear God's voice. And we know that above all, God has spoken his everlasting, uncreated, authoritative, and comforting word to us in Jesus Christ. And so while Burns cannot give us the comfort that perhaps we are looking for, I believe I know someone 
we can. And no, in this case, Jesus is not the answer. I'm talking, of course, about Jonah. In our Parsha, in our, our passage for today, we're going to see that James, like Burns, acknowledges the vanity of human plans and probably would acknowledge the vanity of mousy plans, too. Our lives are like a vapor, says James. How much more so it should be? How much more vaporous are the plans that we make? James engages with the, the same anxieties that the Mousies, the Burnsies, and all creatures, including Rosedale students, must face in a fallen world. But James does more. James corrects the incomplete ways of dealing with these anxieties that a reasonable person might come up with by reflecting upon creation. The same kind of reflection that eases our anxieties with God when we're reflecting upon his word and the power of the Holy Spirit will only multiply our anxiety and offense if we dare to undertake that process of reflection apart from God. And so finally, James offers us comfort that Burns cannot. James is not simply reflecting on nature, capital N, nor are we. The fallen world is not simply nature, but creation. The creation of a loving and just God, a gracious God who has spoken to us through his servant, James. And so here's the passage for today. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, we'll spend a year there, and engage in business, trade, and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him... It is sin. <coughs> Democracy. Let's work our way through. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and trade a bit and make some profit. So James begins by engaging the speech of some conversation partner. And these people could be hypothetical people, imaginary conversation partners. They're my favorite people to argue against, personally. Or they could be real people. Real people whom James aims to correct. Really doesn't matter. In any case, verse 13 mainly represents a way of thinking that James wants to critique. And he introduces 
this perspective with the expression age noon, which we, we might translate colloquially, come on, man, following our president, of course. If you talk like this, if you're saying, oh, today or tomorrow, we'll go to the city, we'll trade a bit, we'll make some profit. Come now, come on. That's no way for a Christian to be talking. Now, at first blush, at first pass, it seems like James is criticizing people who make plans, the plotters, the diligent ones, the ones who look to the year or years ahead and aim to use that year as profitably as possible. First impressions are sometimes wrong, and this probably is not the case. After all, even the fairly depressing book of Ecclesiastes acknowledges there's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heaven. The world is an orderly kind of place, even if we cannot always perceive that order. It is appropriate to plan. And in fact, that reference to the seasons hooks back into the Noahic covenant. God pledges to preserve the regular order of the seasons so that even when humanity is behaving chaotically, even when humanity is rejecting from the heart God's word, which brings order to the watery chaos, there will still be a baseline, a substructure of order within which sinful life can survive, within which we can continue to inhabit a fallen world. The Bible explicitly recognizes that straightforwardly planning for the future is necessary for our survival. That the fact that we can even plan at all that the world isn't totally random is actually a gift of God's common grace. Grace that God extends to everyone regardless of their worthiness. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, says Jesus in Luke chapter 14. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Won't you plan, asks the Lord, Our plans are always subject to God's approval, and certainly God does not approve the construction of every human tower. Genesis 11 makes that very clear. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps, says Proverbs 16 and 9. We also live in a world full of death and sickness and poets and plows. Plans are no guarantee. But when our plans are crafted humbly, in submission to God's wise and gracious order, they are a blessing, what you could call an ordinary means of grace. Now, whereas our first impression might be that James criticizes careful planning for the future, the reality is quite the opposite. When will these people go? Today or tomorrow? 
Where will they go? To such and such a city. Far from laying careful, specific plans, these people seem to be rather careless about the future, rather careless with time. Time and place are not primary concerns. What is specific here? What details do we get? What, what are the primary concerns? Well, these people will do a year in whatever place they're headed. They'll trade. They'll make a profit. That's what they're out to do. It doesn't matter where or when. Whenever they get there, wherever they're going, within a year, you can rest assured that they'll have made it. They'll have done it. Instead of humbly planning within God's good order, trusting the rest to the providence of God, these people trust in themselves. They are arrogantly self-assured that whenever, wherever, however, they will be the ones to make it work. They know they can do it. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James immediately corrects the so-called knowledge of his conversation partners. Now, far from knowing what they'll be doing in a year, far from knowing that they'll be the ones to make it work wherever, whenever, however, that it'll be profitable, some city somewhere, I don't know, they don't even know how they're going to get done tomorrow. In the Greek, there's an interesting uh, change of grammar, right? They're, they know they're going to do it, but they don't even know how they're going to get done tomorrow. They're going to do it next year. They don't know how they're going to get done. James is hooking back into a really interesting thread of Old Testament wisdom. And it sounds depressing at first, and actually, apart from God, it is depressing. Human life is nothing. Nothing of itself. It's like smoke. And the word that James uses here overlaps with the Hebrew word hevel, which gets thrown around in Ecclesiastes quite a lot. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. Everything is like smoke. Everything is dissipating into nothing. It's intangible. It has no substance. It ultimately doesn't matter. The smoke has no destiny, and the smoke's origin is not in itself. It's in the fire. And so if human life is like smoke, How should we treat human plans? If our own existence dissipates away into nothing, 
how much less the things that we make? How much more? We can't trust our plans because we can't trust ourselves. Our plans are insubstantial because we are insubstantial. Verse 15. Instead, instead of talking this way, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Instead of speaking in this arrogant, self-assured way, as though wherever, whenever, I've got this, these people should speak humbly about the fire from which the smoke comes, about the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, about the loving God who sustains all things, even sinners like you and me, by his powerful word. Nature, capital N, is not enough to really speak well about the future, to really plan well, we need to account for God, the creator, the sovereign Lord. The success of human plans, whether this or that, ultimately contingent upon God's will. Abby Martin, wherever she is, gave a great talk last semester about Psalm 90. Establish the work of our hands. Lord, establish the work of our hands. The things that we make, which are less than smoke, God can make them solid. God can give them an enduring existence. And if God can do it for those works, which are less than smoke, he can definitely do it for smoke. He can definitely do it for you. That fire that brought you into existence can keep you in existence forever even if Robert Burns has inadvertently plowed down your mousy houses. The success of our plans, whether this or that, is contingent ultimately upon the will of God. Our lives, our plans, our profits, our fulfillment, whether it comes in a year or whether it comes tomorrow or in eternity, all of it ultimately depends upon God. Now, we might not know for sure whether our own plans will come to fulfillment, but we know for sure that God's plans will. I've got a peacock there, symbol of the sin of superbia, pride. Peacocking around, you know. Verse 16. As it is, now, same word from the beginning where we're saying, come on, come now. As it is, come on. You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So we know that God is sovereign. We know that he created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, that his plans will be fulfilled. And we know that we're not like that that we don't create ourselves, that our lives and our plans and our profits and our fulfillment all depend upon God. 
not the other way around. And since we know these things, we know that the kind of speech from verse 13 is actually boastful, actually arrogant, actually evil, that that kind of speech displaces God as the center of all things and replaces him with human ambition, human desire. If we should boast at all in anything, it should be in God. We shouldn't boast that we're able to fulfill our desires, to make it work. Drop me anywhere and in a year, I'll turn a profit. You're not able to do that. But God is able to fulfill his desires and his plans, and he graciously decided to do so through you. And that's worth boasting about. Because unlike your will, unlike my will, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. And our arrogant minds, our arrogant hearts, so given to boasting, need to be renewed, recreated by the power of God's Spirit to truly believe this, to speak like it, and to act like it. How do we know? Well, even when our speech is boastful, arrogant, evil, as James says, quite rightly, God's word is perfectly loving, humble, and good. God's word created the heavens and the earth, created you. God's word appointed an order for fruitfulness and life, whereas my word, your word, our word, humanity's word has brought death and the curse. God's word lovingly sustains his rebellious creation, even when his human image bearers are radically corrupt, desiring evil all the time from their hearts, even when we offensively misrepresent him in creation, even when we caricature the God whom we were created to, to represent. And God's good and perfect word came to us in human flesh as Jesus. And he redeemed us by bearing death and the curse in our place, by living a perfectly righteous life that merits blessing and abundant life with God. We know these things for sure because we have seen Jesus. And so, for the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him, it is sin. It must always be wrong for us to act as though we know things that we do not and cannot know. And we know that. We know that our plans will not succeed apart from God, that our powers are not uh, sufficient to secure the future. But it must also always be wrong for us to act as though God has spoken less to us than he has. So we need to be appropriately humble. We can't claim to know things about the future that we don't actually know. It may be at morn. It may be perchance that the blackness of midnight will burst 
what, into, into, into noon as the blaze of his glory or something? I tried to do it without the sheet music. And just didn't. We don't know certain things, but we do know God because we know Jesus Christ. And everything that we say and do is an extension of our witness to that fact. So will we misrepresent him? Or will we bear witness wisely? So as you look to the future, I would challenge you to consider that the best laid plans of mice and men do often go awry and testify to that. But we don't always freeze in the winter. Sometimes you wind up at a very good place doing something you really like. I want you to consider that you can make plans at all because God is very gracious to sinners because he sustains a world where there's some order and that you can understand it and count on it. I want you to consider that your plans are always subject to God's will and that he will graciously and wisely establish the smoky work of your hands. I want you to consider that we've seen God's will for us revealed all around us in creation, but also decisively in his incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to consider that God's will is to bless sinners and to secure for them an everlasting future with himself. And I want you to consider that the way you relate yourself to the future and also to the disappointments of the present, must bear witness to the security and the real unchanging joy that we have in Christ Jesus and in him alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us the horse and the mule also thank you that you did not make us like them, that you did not make us to be bent over in iniquity or to walk around on all fours like beasts, but that you made us upright, that you made us for eye contact, that you gave us the ability, so often underutilized, to understand that by the same word of creation you have instructed us and given us freedom so that we don't have to be controlled with bit and bridle, but we can freely remain close to you and that we want to remain close to you because we know we understand that you are good and we understand that you are good above all else because of what you have done for us on our behalf in Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ. And when we can look at the cross and see Jesus on the cross as good news, as your wisdom, as your power, our entire view of the world changes. We're more able to see 
in salvation history, even as our mouse houses get plowed under, even as real disappointments shake your people to the core, that you are faithful. You're faithful from generation to generation, and you will always be faithful. And because our hope is in you and your faithfulness, which never changes, our hope endures into the future. You are a consuming fire that will never go out, Lord. That scraggly bush though we are, you burn in us and we are not consumed. You will sustain us forever. And the joy that we experience today in the power of the Spirit as we reflect upon your word together at Rosedale, that joy is just a foretaste of what you are bringing to fulfillment in us. And it may be at morn, we do not know, but we know that you are faithful and we know you will bring your good work to completion. And so with that hope in us, with that frame through which to view the future, bless these people as they plan, whether for tomorrow or for the next year, or as they discern commitments that will hopefully last until death do them part. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bless their discernment Give them the appropriate humility, but the appropriate trust and joy, which stems from knowing you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Go in peace.